the cycle and the rhythm of life, the cadence of life, every once in a while gives you this pearl, something incredibly beautiful that's birthed in intense suffering. Um, and you just, you hang on to those things and you realize that, wow, through that suffering and through those difficult chapters in your life, God is actually giving you the gift and it's the gift of a story. And out of that story uh, is birthed a community. Hey, welcome to the Kindling Fire. My name is Troy Mangum. St. Ignatius said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus said, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. This podcast is here to bring God glory through you becoming fully alive and you bearing much fruit or having powerful results in your life. I believe you can use your unique gifts and talents to change the world. If you listen to this show and read our blogs, you will be inspired to take your own journey of faith to become a man or woman who is fully alive, making an impact in the world around you. I interview people that I think are awesome that are doing that today to inspire and to challenge you. You can do the same. Let's get rolling. Today on the Kindling Fire, I have the privilege of having Kevin DeVries, who is the founder and president of Grace Explorations out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. Hey, it's great to be here. So um, as far as a backdrop of uh, uh, just a little bit of the bio from, from his uh, ministry's website, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you have hiked five of the seven highest peaks. Is that true in the world? Uh, right. Specifically the continental summits. So not necessarily the highest peaks, but they are the continental peaks on five different continents. There's seven of them. They call them the seven summits, and I've climbed five of those seven. Awesome. And so one of the ways that you may know Kevin is there was a documentary done called Finding Noah in 2015, and Kevin was uh, key in leading the group of scientists who were looking for actually Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat in Turkey. Uh, But um, some of Kevin's backstory in his journey is really what we're going to be focusing on for this show Uh, is uh, I think we have things in common as it relates to uh, having uh, calling and and ministry and mission, but also having it kind of intermixed with a lot of ambition, which can make for a very long road, (laughs) as I've found, and I think Kevin has found as well. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Tell me a little bit about... Uh, Grace Explorations, Where you know, why did you start it? What's the heart behind it? Let's talk about that. Yeah, so a lot of what I did in life uh, early on was very individualistic. Um, I'm a typical cowboy type where I get an idea or a dream in my head and I start a company. And then I get tired of it after a couple of years um, and then I sell it. So there's house flippers and there's business flippers. So I kind of did that. Uh, I was also involved uh, professionally in ministry for a decade or so, and now I've re-entered that phase. But uh, the whole idea for Grace Explorations was really a phoenix rising out of the ashes. It was not something that I could have foreseen. Um, 2012 was a very difficult year for me. I had just gone through a second divorce uh, concurrent with a bankruptcy uh, to the extent that uh, I was houseless and without uh, money and without really any uh, future hope as far as I was concerned. And uh, a couple years later, after going through a lot of uh, what we call them the four streams, and one of which is the church, and then there's contemplation, community, and counseling or therapy by kind of swimming in those four different streams over the course of a couple years, 
in different men's ministries events. I started to get my legs back under my feet. Uh, the film, as you mentioned, Finding Noah, uh, which was filmed in 2013, which was the last year that we were on Mount Ararat uh, with a group of scientists looking for any type of scientific evidence uh, of Noah's Ark on top of Mount Ararat in Turkey at nearly 17,000 feet. Uh, it was filmed that year in 2013, and it became the film in 2015. That, um, got me into different circles with men's ministries uh, because the film did really well and the film itself has a very strong uh, biblical masculine journey theme to it. It's kind of like Proverbs 25 verse 2 where it talks about how God's glory is the secret and man's glory or the king's glory is the search. And so the film is less about a boat. It's more about a brotherhood of why these guys are doing what they're doing, risking life and limb under very adverse uh, circumstances looking for the ship. That film uh, connected me with some men's ministry leaders that were like, wow, this is a great story, and you were the lead mountaineer. We'd love to have you come and speak. And so I didn't really look for it. I was actually flabbergasted anybody would want to have me come and speak because I was at such a low point in my own personal life. My religious reputation was in shadows. Uh, but they saw something, and um, I followed those leads and spoke all over the country from uh, essentially like 2005 14-ish to 2016-ish uh, for about two years, tens of thousands of people in different men's ministry events. And then Grace Explorations actually started as it is in its present form in uh, January of 2016 when I had um, some guys just come to me and just say, look, we love what you're doing, but we'd love for you to also uh, create a community for men like yourself who are beautifully broken uh, and create a redemptive community for men here in West Michigan. So that's kind of how that started. It was birthed out of pain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of things that, that uh, have depth and meaning do come out of that place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like a pearl. You know, you need a little bit of suffering for the oyster of life to produce something like that. But it's the only gem that nature produces that you really shouldn't touch. Nature perfects it. And so I think the cycle and the rhythm of life, the cadence of life, every once in a while gives you this pearl, something incredibly beautiful that's birthed in intense suffering. Um, and you just, you hang on to those things and you realize that, wow, through that suffering and through those difficult chapters in your life, God is actually giving you the gift and it's the gift of a story. And out of that story uh, is birthed a community. Mm. So one of the things that you made a comment in before the, we started the show was that you really need to pay attention to uh, where you uh, effectively where your wounds are because that's where your glory resides. Or you you phrased it a little differently. Can you can you explore that that idea? What what made what's behind what you're saying there? Yeah, it kind of originates in Robert Bly, the poet's uh, quote, and I'm not sure if I'm getting it exactly right, but it's something to the extent that in our wounds also lies our genius, or our genius lies inside our wounds. And it's something to the effect that um, I, I rephrase that in a lot of the talks that I give and say it's something along these lines that um, pain encrypts your purpose. Your purpose is actually encrypted inside your pain. And so... When I ask a man to go to his darkest day, which I do in my talks, it's actually called the day the devil came to church, and that's a whole other subject matter. But I tell guys, look, I'm not asking you just to wallow in your own misery um, and somehow, you know, exorcist this pain just by 
brute terror or shock force, shock and awe. I'm asking you to go inside your pain because that's where your purpose is encrypted. And if you can't find your pain or if you can't follow your pain as a guide or if you kill your pain, you've actually killed the guide that can lead you to a greater place. So be very careful with what you do with your wounds. Don't run from them. Uh, you'll never outrun them. They're always going to catch up to you because your wounds come with you. It's always subterranean. It's interior geography. So it doesn't matter where you go, who you marry, what you do. All that stuff is resident inside you. So a lot of what I was trying to do, I didn't realize it as a man in my 20s and 30s. I was just incredibly ambitious, um, was gifted in certain areas. So, you know, the gift always makes way for the giver, and so doors would open and opportunities for ministry began in my 20s, traveled the world, took kids all over the world, and became a national consultant for a, a big denomination while I was doing local church work and also starting up a company at the same time and was just blowing through a ton of stop signs. Uh, didn't like any idea of silence. Um, silence was incredibly intimidating. Contemplation, prayer, rest, Sabbath, shalom, all those concepts were incredibly foreign to me. I was driven, and a lot of it was from shame. Uh, I think I was still in, the, in a context of I'm a sinner saved by grace and didn't really get further than that. I didn't climb the metaphoric mountain and realize that, yeah, I, I am a sinner. That's obviously baseline. Um, but I was kind of almost acting more like a slave who behaves rather than a son who actually belongs. And so... Uh, until I climbed that metaphoric mountain, until some of my shame was touched and self-hatred and loathing was uh, deeply touched, um, I couldn't ascend into that sonship. And so I was driven um, by the sense of shame, never accomplishing enough, never quite measuring up. God was always somewhat displeased with me, and so just work, 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 and maybe you can get his favor, and if you do a bunch of good things, good things will happen. Well, then my whole narrative got flipped upside down, kind of like Job's narrative in the book of Job. He was doing a lot of good things because he was really afraid. If he didn't do those good things, the bad things would happen. Well, he did all the good things, all the right things, and the bad things still happened. So God basically had to destroy his theology and, and essentially tell him, look, I'm not a formula. I'm not some cosmic slot machine that if you put a bunch of good stuff in, all this good comes out. I have to destroy your sense of entitlement. I have to destroy your idol of a perfect life. And I'm not going to answer your unanswerable questions because the only thing that I can do for you is to answer your unanswerable questions with my unquestionable self. I have to give you the gift of myself because you don't have the bandwidth to comprehend all the other narratives that are going on behind the scenes in a realm that you can't comprehend. I have to just give you myself and give you faith and give you friendship and brotherhood and sonship instead of you know, dealing with the cerebral things. So my whole world came to a screeching halt in 2012 two divorces, uh, that was a second one, uh, bankruptcy, all those things happen, and now I'm forced with, okay, why was I climbing all those mountains, and why was I skiing to the North Pole, why was I going to the ends of the earth, why was I climbing the tallest peaks in every continent? Uh, a lot of it was driven by shame, uh, a lot of shadows, uh, but specifically, a lot of it was trauma. Yeah, so and that's really that's the kind core of, where, of what I talk about. Yeah, so and that's kind of where uh, I, I'm interested in going is is a lot of times when we take the time and allow God to show us, you know, what is really behind all this activity, right? And this in this uh, fear of quiet and all these other things that we 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 find ourselves doing. 
um, the Lord will take us back sometimes to places that we don't want to go. Uh, yep. But he has, an, he has good intention to not keep you there, but so that you can kind of overcome it and, and really truly be healed. So is there any part of that from the trauma standpoint that you can share uh, with our listeners? Actually, with special ops guys on the mountain, on Mount Ararat in 2013, that were the first uh, people to actually pull me aside and say, look, we don't know your story. We know you haven't done combat, but you're, you know, working with us here in this demilitarized zone. It was a precarious politically tense place there on the border of Iran and Turkey uh, looking for the Ark. So we understand that, but you got what we got. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? I, you know, Ark fever? And they said, no, ding dong, you're, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. You got PTSD. And I was like, I thought that's just for guys like you guys. Like, no, you don't have to fight a war physically to experience what trauma is like. And I said, well, why would you say those kind of things? And they said, well, when we look in your eyes, you got that same 2,000 yard stare blank stare, it's vacuous, the lights are on, nobody's home, uh, there's, not, um, there's not a lot of light there, it's just this blank stare, like you've seen things and things have happened and it's left you inaccessible to yourself, it feels mm. like you're almost divorced from yourself, which mm. probably explains why I couldn't be married to two women very well, because I'd already divorced me for me, it was very difficult for me to be connected to another human because I wasn't emotionally available to them, I wasn't even emotionally available to myself. Mm. And then they said, secondly, the words that come out of your mouth, you're always talking about something in the future, so you're fearing your future or you're punishing your past, but here's what they said, catch this, it said you're never now. You're just, you're not here. So when I tell, when I draw analogies or metaphoric pictures of what trauma looks like, it's a leprous colony. Trauma feels numb, it's unfeeling, it's detached, it's something you can't access, it's still a part of you, it's kind of like a memory that's hidden in the basement of your house, of your soul, it's in a dark corner somewhere, you've got this thing under lock and key, it's dark, it's quiet, you think it's not there, but it's still part of the same household, and what a good therapist will do, or a good friend, or more importantly, the grace of God, because trauma is a time wound, Time can't heal that because time actually was part of the wound process. So something transcended of time, God's time, Kairos time, if you want to go Greek on it, has to come into this uh, space-time continuum, and it has to get you back to that same place, and it has to somehow touch that wound in the basement, dwelling in the cellar of your consciousness, and get that up the staircase, out of the basement, into the living room, into the light, where it lives and resides in all your other collective memories. So now, that's a tricky process, but... Yeah. If you don't do that, you're always going to be driven to do external things. As I just tell people that are struggling with trauma, I say, well, how do you know if I have trauma? I say, well, if you're always externalizing what you can't internalize, you probably are dealing with untreated trauma. So in 2012, that, uh, the, what I'm curious about is in all the analogies and allegories that you've talked through, you're talking about a God that either kills us, or allows death so that there can be something new. So in 2012, can you describe what God did for you personally uh, in bringing that about? For me in 2012, I just, uh, I thought it was the end. Um, I literally thought this is is it. I was kind of checking out, you know, I just thought, boy, this story is done. And, um... And, and, and have a lot of hope. Yeah, and did you feel that, I mean, did you kind of feel like, well, uh, 
you know, I've kind of screwed everything up, and here I sit. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I felt like, um, to be honest with you, I felt like God came too late. Ah, um, interesting. It seemed, like, it seemed like, yeah, it seemed like he was showing up for everybody else, and everybody else had the secret formulas, and they were buying the right books, and they were saying the right things. But in my case, it just didn't happen, and there was a tremendous amount of uh, vitriol and bitterness and sense of betrayal out there. There was a lot of anger out there when uh, when people seemingly did the right thing and they still ended up with an undesirable result, but they have to stay with the story. So I tied, this is crazy, this is not going to preach well in a church, but I tied my way into bankruptcy and was highly offended by that until I understood that God had to offend my mind to open my heart, which is essentially the crux of the cross. It's offensive to the Jew, only criminals, only those that are cursed die on a cross. Why would the Son of God die on a cross? To the Greek, it's like, okay, if you're really one of our gods, Gods don't die on crosses for people. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So you were you were you shoot thunderbolts. You were taking your yeah. You were taking your extremism, and then applying it with now you're doing spiritual things, right? So if yep. And so now you're you know well I'm gonna risk more you know and and uh, and then it doesn't come through and and did you feel like God betrayed you? Yeah, you know, it's it, these are all old and New Testament references, but it's the scandal on. It's the scandal of the gospel. It's a stumbling stone. And before you don't walk into grace, you don't climb into grace, you fall into grace. And there has to be some offense, the truth, namely, that offends you. And when you fall, you fall into grace, and grace is what catches you at the bottom. And so, you know, grace mm-hmm. is like water. It always descends to the lowest point. And I had to reach the end of myself. I had to travel the ends of the earth to reach the end of myself. I had to climb the highest mountains to realize that and go to the lowest depths to realize that wherever I go, God is already there. And I, I also had to deal with my sense of entitlement, my sense of, of religious pride. Yeah. That, uh, because I was a great guy, I should be immune to these things. And I, I had to realize that God doesn't look at things the same way we do. He doesn't have the same view on failure that we do. I think he looks at it as a great teacher. I think that evil, or what we call evil, in many cases is simply a servant to him. It's just another one of his tools. So I think God is this master surgeon. I don't think he's a a warden, um, a prison warden, where he's punishing us. So a lot of times we misinterpret our pain as punitive when it's actually redemptive. I think what's really happening is if God has you in the operating table and yeah, it's painful and boy, you're misinterpreting this really big time because you think you're a prisoner because your shame is telling you that, but you're actually a patient and the pain that you're feeling is redemptive. It's a very, very good, highly skilled surgeon that has an incredibly steady hand, an incredibly good heart, but the blade that he's, that he's handling is gonna hurt literally like hell. So for me, it was, uh, two times divorce. So I tell people, you know, I had to be twice, I had to be hurt twice in the same place to be healed once and for all. I had to be a very specific, precise, severe, and merciful uh, surgery to be able to extract uh, that shrapnel in my life. And it had to be in the same exact spot because the first spot never healed and was infected. So you had to go back in. But I think it's incredible how much hubris we have as humans to be able to walk up to God Almighty as our master surgeon and demand that he heals us the way we want to be healed, namely without pain and with just goodness. Just bless me, God. Yeah, yeah, there's a guy that I got exposed to in my darkest times, and he's a pastor, a guy named Lon Solomon, and he wrote a book called Brokenness. Yeah. You know the book? 
Um, no, but he's out of McLean, Virginia, right? Yeah, that's right. And effectively, yep. his storyline is, I did everything right, and everything went wrong. And it yep. blew up his theology. And, and effectively, he ended up, um, through uh, sickness with his children, uh, just getting at the very, very end of himself. And then he started to look at the, uh, the stories in, the, in the, the Bible as being, oh, this journey down seems to be uh, standard for the men of God, right? That mm-hmm. they will go down. But it's not to kill us. It's to purify us. It's to there you go. Uh, it, and so much of it feels like you're God. You are truly doing everything awful and evil to me. Why are you so bad to me? Whereas God's just saying, I'm not trying to kill it. All I'm trying to do is purify it, perfect yeah. it. No, so you know, I've given you two master metaphors: the tomb and the womb analogy, and the patient versus prisoner analogy. Uh, try this on for size. I think it fits hand and glove with what you just said. So, when I was at my lowest point, um, I was just asking God, God, just help me interpret what's going on here. I don't even really need to know why. I just need to have some level of interpretation. Uh, Throw always talked about that a man's deepest life comes to him as a waking dream. It feels surreal, but it's also real all at the same time. And so I was asking God, just help me to interpret what's going on here because I think I'm I'm mixing my metaphors wrong. I think my shame has uh, created a shameful God that I'm hiding from, but I want to know the real God. I don't want to know the shameful God, the one that I'm hiding from. I want to know the God, the God who's still in the garden, who's still there, who's still waiting at the tree of life and is waiting for us to come back like a prodigal uh, son would come back to his father. And he showed me how on Everest, um, it all clicked. It was an epiphany that all came together in a pretty short period of time. But on Everest, they will uh, take climbers from the trailhead, which is about 11,500 feet or thereabouts, and they'll bring them all the way up to uh, base camp at about 17,500 feet. Then you go through the dreaded Kumbu Icefall, which is a series of of uh, monstrous ice structures, mountains of ice, if you will, colossal in form, um, and they can collapse at any time. So all those pictures you see of guys, you know, climbing over ladders, over gaping crevasses with running belays and fixed lines, that's in the Kumbu Icefall. So nobody likes to go through that except in the middle of the night because people die there every single Everest season, and they're in the thick of it right now in May. You go through that, you go up to Camp 1, then Camp 2, then Camp 3, and at Camp 3, at about 23,500 feet or thereabouts, they do something that is totally un-American, totally un-Western, and, and in many cases, exactly the opposite of what we would think logic would, uh, would dictate. They take the climbers all the way down through Camp 2, Camp 1, Kumbu Icefall, Base Camp, all the way down to Trailhead again at around 11,500, 12,000 feet, depending on which village they uh, reside at. And it's for this simple purpose. It's very simple, but it's incredibly profound. Nothing heals in thin air. Nothing. Gestational, cerebral, pulmonary. You get a paper cut at 23,500 feet. You're sleeping with oxygen. You're on the threshold of the death zone, which theoretically begins at 26 or so thousand feet, where your body literally can no longer acclimate. You can't get any more oxygen in your bloodstream. You're a fish out of water. Your body is actually deteriorating. You're killing brain cells, which explains a lot probably of maybe my lack of intelligence in certain areas, but it's a very <laughs> profound analogy. So I felt like God was saying to me, is like, you have got this whole thing all wrong. So I think what God was saying to me was, if 
I have taken you down lower. You thought it was punitive. It's redemptive. Nothing heals in thin air. I've got to get you well. I've got to touch your shame. I have to touch your trauma because the only way I'm going to get you back up the mountain is to take you lower than you've never before than you've ever been before because I'm going to take you higher than you've ever been before. And so what they'll do with an Everest climber is they'll take them all the way down to the trailhead and they'll gorge on food, get their health back, their appetite back. The bubbling brook is there. There's, there's more of a color palette there instead of black and white. It's full color spectrum. The birds are singing. I mean, life is coming back. And then uh, they'll do that for several days. And then in two weeks' time, they'll basically, they haven't lost anything because they have a massive amount of oxygen built up in their bloodstream. So they've lost nothing going down. It's actually all part of the plan. Then in two weeks or three weeks or so, they can rocket from that point at the beginning of the trailhead all the way up to the cruising altitude of a 747 at uh, just above 29,000 feet. They can summit Everest. They didn't lose anything in the acclimation. They didn't lose anything going down. They just got well. They got healthy. They got well-fed, and they were able to climb up that mountain. And so I feel like what a lot of men do and a lot of people do is we misinterpret our metaphors. We mix our metaphors, and we don't realize that, yeah, there was probably some mistakes that you made, certainly. David made mistakes. Moses made mistakes. Joseph made mistakes. We all make mistakes. But I think it's a lot like Peter and Jesus. Jesus already knows you're going to make that mistake. Jonah made a big mistake, but he ended up on the same shore that he should have been in the first place. Instead of on a ship, he was inside of a whale that belched him out on the, on the, the shore. So I'm even giving grace to my mistakes. I'm not committing them, you know, just saying, okay, God, just make something out of this. God forbid, but I realize now that God is so sovereign, so all-encompassing. Even my goof-ups um, are sovereignly woven into the plan where it still ends up putting me in the right place at the right time with the right people. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great place to end um, in, in an incredible analogy. I, uh, so, so much of this is, is contingent on do you trust me? Do we exactly. truly trust the Lord in the yes. way that he has with us? And so much of us get pushed up against that wall of, are you know is are you trustworthy? It doesn't feel like you're trustworthy. It just doesn't. I don't like where I'm at. But if 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 and we both are testimonies. God is good, and if you will you will trust Him, you will see in time. And it may take years. Just to be clear, in time you will understand what the Lord was doing. Yep. So. No, absolutely. Um, and we just have to trust that He knows what He's looking for. So we're always on a journey, and we're on a search. But God's searching for something, too, and he's searching for the gold inside of man's heart. He's searching for mm. uh, that part of him that resonates and is resplendent with the image of his son, of Christ. And so I think he has this much, much broader view of our lives than we do. And he knows how to extract that gold. But to extract that gold, to see the image of Christ in a man or a woman's life or a child's life, takes tremendous pressure, takes tremendous heat, um, refinement, but at the end, there's something really, really beautiful to behold. Yeah, and man, so well said, because uh, so much of what man values is, is the external talent, abilities, and skill, whereas God is going after the gold, and it takes, yep. like you said, it gets what he's after. And that's not always what the world values is, oh, that's so amazing, you know, because everybody wants to wow everybody, but God's going after something deeper. So good. Yeah, and it's always something that's eternal. Amen.
If you've been encouraged and inspired by the show and you would like to know what else we've got going on, go to thekindlingfire.com. There you can join the Fire Starters, which is a Facebook Messenger community I let know first anytime I do anything. You can also get a book there called You Can Certainly Do It that I've written to really encourage you to take your first steps to really start the small fire that God's starting in your life. Uh, in addition to that, you can sign up for the seven-day Bible devotional, Become a Sign and Wonder. And as always, be awesome.